Digiday podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, senior reporter at Digiday. Kaylee, this week you talked with Bustle Chief Revenue Officer Jason Wagenheim. How did that conversation go? Because Bustle, obviously, they've been pretty active the past few years when it comes to M&A. So they've really been building up the business. I think Brian Goldberg's also been pretty vocal this year about the potential for more M&A, um, possibly a SPAC. How is the business going for Bustle? Yeah, um, you know, it was a really interesting conversation. You're right, M&A is a very... Um, popular uh, area for a lot of media companies right now. But, um, you know, we got into it a little bit. Um, I would say that, you know, M&A is definitely on the mind of um, the execs at Bustle. Uh, I think the goal really is to get more territory to sell and forge relationships with advertisers to, um, I think, really become like the go-to media company for a lot of different verticals. So that's definitely um, a goal for Bustle. And we do get into that in um, a bit of the conversation. Relationships between media companies and advertisers have changed in a lot of respects in the past year. And in some respects, they haven't changed. But like the sales process seems Mm -hmm. to have changed. Did Jason talk much about how the sales process has changed or how he'd like to see it change moving forward? Yeah, he definitely wants the RFP process to just kind of end. Um, You know, that's uh, a hard one to get rid of. Um, But I think, you know, going off of the conversation around M&A, it's like there is, um, I think his opportunity is, like the opportunity he sees is to really become like close, you know, almost friends with advertisers and certain brands and um, cut out the RFP process entirely just so that advertisers come to them when they have an idea and they go through and just kind of cut that deal time down. Um, You know, that's, I think, his main goal. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, maybe as an industry trend, if like, the period of time between initiating conversation and running a campaign, if that time period just kind of shrinks um, this coming year. Did he mention like all these companies are diversifying revenue sources? Are they like prioritizing or focusing in on any particular newer category at the moment? Yes. Um, I think commerce is a huge like focus for a lot of publishers right now, but what they're looking to do is combine um, commerce and sponsorship even more so. So like many other publishers, um, and Jason gets into this, they're looking to launch a shop, a marketplace kind of setup. Um, within that, there will be opportunities to integrate sponsors in really neat ways. And I think that's a really interesting part of this conversation to listen for. Cool. All right. We'll take it away, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Well, welcome, Jason. Thanks so much for being on today. It's good to be here, Kaylee. Thanks. So I thought it'd be great to start with a overview of 2020. Um, and I guess looking back on the year, um, which areas of your business saw growth? Which areas took a little bit of a, a dip maybe due to the pandemic-induced recession? Because um, I assume advertising wasn't smooth sailing the entire year. Um, but I do recall in a previous conversation that you and I had, um, you had projected that the, I believe it was the direct sold business was going to be up 25% year over year. And I'm curious if that kind of like held true. Yeah, that was for Q4 actually, Kelly. And we finished right on the, right on the button of about 25% for with Q4 growth year over year which is pretty remarkable. I mean, I've never had, I've been doing this 25 years now, and I've never had a year like the one we just went through. I think everybody can pretty much say the same thing. But it was really bookended by two great quarters in Q1 and Q4. 
At one point in Q1 pre-pandemic, we were forecasting to be up as much as 40%, and the pacing on all of our revenue really showed that. Q2, of course, was Q2, and we had the darkest 72 hours in our company's history where literally tens of millions of dollars just canceled you know, within, within a, a three-day time period. There was a lot of panic at the start of the pandemic. And then in, I don't know, around July 4th, um, right as we sort of headed into Q3, we, start to, we started to see and experience a sea change with our advertisers starting to think about back-to-school timing. I think they had their sea legs under them with for what the pandemic might mean for their business and how they were pivoting in their own right. So we started to see a lot of activity in Q3 that really started to materialize for late Q3 and Q4. And if you would have asked me back in March or April as we were going through really, really hard decisions and fierce negotiations with some of our investors and our board about exactly how much to cut and how much to scale back, I never in a million years would have thought that we would have ended Q4 up the way we did. Our total business for the year, so when you look at our branded uh, direct advertising business, when you look at our programmatic business and our affiliate business, all rolled up, we're finishing the year up 5%. We literally just closed mm-hmm. the books on Friday, and we were all doing some virtual high fives with uh, with that news, which was pretty pretty incredible considering the year that we had. Yeah, absolutely. Is I guess is up 5% um, from the previous year in 2019 or up 5% in your um from your projections for 2020? No, no, we were way off our projection, you know, just because of the the nature of what happened in the pandemic. But we finished the year sure. up 5% versus our total from 2019. Mm-hmm. And you asked earlier, I should answer, I should actually answer your question, Kelly, because you asked me a very direct one. The, the affiliate business was really a terrific driver for us. It makes up about 20% of our revenue right now. And that way overperformed. Our direct advertising business was flat and programmatic was slightly down. So when you mix it all together, we were up 5% again, which we were super happy about. But it's just, you know, it's the importance of having both diverse advertising categories to call on and be able to satisfy retail as much as tech, as much as auto, as much as fashion, but also have a really healthy affiliate business and a commerce business that Megan Montine on our team leads very successfully. Yeah, that um, I have a, a ton of questions to kind of you know, dive into that a little bit more. But um, I wanted to start with, um, I guess, the e-commerce side of things, because you mentioned that that um, affiliate revenue was up more substantially than the other areas of your business, which makes complete sense given, you know, the increase of online shopping pretty much across the board. Um, so most of your, is it true that like all of your um, e-commerce business is affiliate at this point? That's right. At this point, all of our affiliate business comes through um, affiliate links and relationships, primarily with Amazon. It's no secret that most lifestyle publishers like us have a lot of uh, affiliate business that comes through Amazon and us just creating and serving a boatload of content. I think we do over a thousand articles a year, most of that connected back to Amazon and driving that business. But I'm really excited. Um, On April 1st, we are going to launch a new commerce initiative across most of our sites that will allow readers to transact within our four walls, stay on our platform through native checkout, through a universal shopping cart. Um, We're going to create a very, very big commerce initiative that will not at all compete with what we do with Amazon, but allow our readers to transact for some of the things they're not necessarily looking for when they're shopping through us on Amazon. That's really neat. So is it going to be kind of like a a marketplace that lives on all of your brands' websites, or is it kind of like a separate um, 
entity of itself. So we've got a really terrible working name for it. I'll share with you. It's called BDG Shops. That's not the title we'll be out with, but that's sort of our our code name for it now. We'll launch it on Bustle, Inverse, the Zoe Report, and Nylon to start, mm-hmm. which are you know big sites where they have real you know scale and traffic, and for the most part, um, our users and readers are there to transact and, and think about product. And we have thousands and thousands of editorial articles that we do every single year that have shopping links in them. They might be through skim links. Again, it might be through Amazon. It might be a link directly to Macy's.com. The difference here is the shopping engine uh, that we're going to be partnering with allows um, for readers to very seamlessly transact on our site, um, check out once, and they can check out for as many products as they like. And then a bot will basically push the order directly to a retailer to fulfill the transaction, and the consumer will get you know five or six different packages in the mail. But the checkout experience will be will be super um, kind of uh, seamless, and most importantly, frictionless. I think you know the pandemic has accelerated a lot of things. You know, even how we're having this podcast conversation right now, um, we might be doing it in a different format had we not had you know quarantine. Um, but it's also accelerated uh, advertisers' uh, emphasis on performance and conversion with the work that we do for them. So, you know, we do a lot of branded content, a lot of upper funnel awareness building type work, big, beautiful storytelling, influencer work, videos. But it's harder with those kind of tactics to have readers actually have the opportunity to transact and move down the funnel to purchase. Mm-hmm. This, this, this opportunity that we're launching really, really removes all those barriers. No longer will there be seven or eight clicks away to a point of transaction. You'll be able to do it right from the content that we're creating and not leave our site to have to do it. Um, so I'm really optimistic about it. I think, you know, companies like Goop were invented with the idea of content and commerce working really well together. And, you know, we're looking to kind of kick all of that up a notch and really service both our advertising partners through through this new e-com experience, but also, you know, um, maybe create some new affiliate revenue streams as well. Yeah, I was going to ask, how's the, I guess, monetization side of things for you? Because um, it sounds like there's still that affiliate component, but I'm curious, like, are you earning more um, off of transactions that take place in this, you know, BG, BDG shops as it's you know, tentatively called. <laughs> um, but then it also sounds like there is that advertising component in there and that ability to kind of bridge the two. Um, can you talk about like that side of the the business? Yeah, yeah. So imagine, you know, and you'll see this in April when we launch, we'll have these big, beautiful storefronts and there might be an article about, um, you know, 10, 10 looks for spring. And um, I'm, I'm not the editor, so I come up with terrible headlines like that. I'm sorry. But 10 great looks for spring, and there'll be editorial features around, just like the way editors do anyway, um, featuring products, showcasing the looks that you know they're considering on trend for, for that season. But imagine if I could say to you, here are 10 great looks for spring. Uh, summer music festival season is upon us, or you know, here's great beachwear, whatever it might be all available at Macy's.com or all available at Target.com or here are, you know, 18 great looks for holiday, let's just say, and we featured 10 different retailers within that article itself, we'll be selling um, at a premium the opportunity to be featured more prominently as a storefront tied to the branded content Mm -hmm. and the advertising campaign work that we do for those brands to give them, you know, more front and center placement. I'd consider it akin to putting them in the windows at Macy's or Saks, you know, right on right on Fifth Avenue or awesome. Herald Square. Yeah, that that's like um, it seems like a really solid, I guess, 
way to tie the two together. Um, so I, I'm curious, like, have you set any kind of like goals for um, how much revenue this new business will bring in this year? Yeah, I think it'll be twofold. I think it should easily generate eight figures in revenue for us tied to the advertising work that we'll do. We already have a lot of early enthusiasm from major brands who I expect to mm-hmm. see there when we launch. With the shopping engine, which I can't announce just yet, but with the shopping engine that we're signing up, we will have 80 merchants and retailers available right out of the gate. So the store will be very, very filled with product. And then I also think it can generate eight figures for us um, probably in 2022 off the affiliate relationship as well. So, you know, it's a good opportunity for us to not just capture and help our advertising partners perform better, but we'll also be taking a cut of affiliate revenue the same way we do with any other affiliate transaction. That's awesome. Um, and I did want to get into some of the advertising, um, the side of things from both 2020, but then also kind of like looking at the coming year as well. Um, you know, we've spoken about some of the um, virtual events initiatives that you've kind of sold your advertisers on. Um, and I know that you mentioned that there was that period in, um, what was it, March, where, you know, you lost tens of millions of dollars in deals. It, you know, really scary. A lot of publishers experienced that. Um, I guess, how did you manage to end up keeping advertiser spending with you, um, you know, starting around that July period that you mentioned? Um, how did you get them to, you know, want to start spending again? And, and I guess, were most of the deals that you were closing, like tied to these new, maybe virtually focused um, products that you weren't selling in 2019? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. I think I think first and foremost, we have always been focused on operational excellence and executional excellence. When people decide to trust us with their money and their ad spends, we really try hard not to mess up. And we want to deliver for them, we want to over-deliver, and we want to be really, really easy to work with. Part of that comes being nimble and really flexible and helping advertisers pivot to whatever new world we, you know, or new hand that we've been dealt by the universe. And we had a lot of business that was, you know, threatening to cancel at the start of the pandemic. And we got on the phone with our top partners where there's a lot of trust and enthusiasm for working together. And we said, how can we help each other through this? How can we give you more of our inventory, reduce your rates? How can we throw in some extra social promotion or virtual events to help you kind of manage your business and connect with our readers at a time that is very, very different than anything we've experienced before. And a good handful, actually about a dozen of our clients really took us up on the virtual event concepts. We've done great things for Athleta, for Nature's Way, for Dan Enlightened Fit. Health and wellness and the importance of self-care has never been more paramount. I think we've been talking about that for years, but that's another train that just totally accelerated because of what happened with COVID. And um, the wellness type events, the self-care rituals, you know, the, 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 in, the kind of holistic wellness and, and the full body approach to wellness is a, a lot of content that we created very successfully and also turned into virtual events. Um, our virtual events business also was a high seven figure. We did about eight or nine million dollars worth of campaigns this year tied to virtual events like that. So again, I don't think we'd have the year that we had being up 5% had that not been an important component of, um, of, of our strategy for the, for the year. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you named a, a couple of the um, advertisers that participated in, in that side of things, um, I guess. And those are mostly in, I would say, the health and wellness or like CPG categories. But were there specific categories of advertisers that you saw particularly keeping their media spend strong in 2020? Or um, were there new 
categories that coming into the picture? Yeah, and you know, I love this about our company and the thesis for this whole entire company for which Brian Goldberg and I and Kathy Kaplan, now our CFO, and my editorial leadership and Emma Rosenblum and Josh Topolsky, um, the leadership team is always talking about diversifying the categories that we can compete in. I want there as a CRO and a president of a media company, when there's an RFP from a client, I don't care if it's from pharma or finance or auto or wellness or beauty or fashion or toys, I want to compete. I want to be in the mix. And had we, I'll give you a, a real-time example of this. We spent a lot of time and effort reorganize, reorganizing our company at the end of 2019 to welcome and raise up on a platform our culture and innovation sites, which are Input, Inverse, and Mike.com. And with opening that door pre-pandemic, we also opened the floodgates to be able to call on what would otherwise be non-endemic business for the lifestyle sites beyond fashion, retail, and beauty. So when you have a pandemic hit you, as the universe has taught us, um, and you lose your retail business overnight because stores aren't open, or your travel business just goes out the window because hotels and theme parks can't be open, but you have the opportunity to start building a business around the technology category, um, it makes up for a lot of that shortfall. So tech for us was up four times, uh, three is about 350% in total revenue this year where our retail category was down 27%. So it didn't make up all the shortfall because retail is such a massive category. But thank mm -hmm. God we had tech you know, right behind us and something we decided to invest in in late 19 to diversify. Wellness is another example. We spent the last couple, uh, about 18 to 24 months building a wellness strategy for our brands. We've seen health and wellness content perform remarkably well. We're not a self.com or a womenshealth.com. I mean, that's very endemic for them. But gosh, we have a lot of great content that gets a lot of great traffic. And that category was up 35% for us this year too, which made up for some of the shortfall that we had in beauty or fashion. So we've got a very well-rounded company, a very well-rounded strategy against it. And I look forward to this year because we are raising money, we are buying stuff, we're back on a buying spree, and we're looking for great content platforms you know, to help fill in some of those, those spaces that we still have left to fill. Got it. Um, that's interesting because you're not the only publisher I've spoken with um, to say that um, tech was a huge category in 2020. Um, that was, I think, a pretty much across the board, like one of the first industries that bounced back naturally because everything's taking place online. Um, but I am curious, so you talked about building up your, um, what the culture and uh, technology, I think, division or that division. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to ask, because I know that the outline was part of that division that had to, I guess, uh, be put on ice or cease publication last year. Um, I know that you know, you mentioned that in 2019, you started really investing into this area. Um, I think you had projected at one point that this would be a eight-figure business for um, Bustle Digital Group in 2020 as like the first full year. Um, I'm curious, how did that division kind of play out in 2020? Um, you mentioned that that category of advertising spiked, but did you hit that like eight figure kind of? We, we were we were just shy. I think we were in the neighborhood of eight or nine million dollars against just those sites. Mm -hmm. But they also what what I love about what we've done with input and inverse and and I'll talk about the outline too because I think it's an important part of this conversation is that it opened doors for us. So so Samsung is one of our largest advertisers now. And had we not opened up the culture and innovation sites and, and made some of the hires that we made to help you know strategically drive that business. 
we never would be doing the amount of business we're doing with Samsung. A lot of that business happens to also run on Bustle and run on some of our other sites like Elite Daily and Nylon. Mm-hmm. But it also, you know, is led in so many ways with what we do on Inverse. Microsoft is another example of a very important client for us and has been to Inverse long before the acquisition. You know, we see some of our Microsoft business also run across the women's lifestyle sites as well. And, you know, you mentioned the outline and, and um, you know, it is it is on the shelf right now. There's no immediate plans for it. I think that's up for Josh to really figure out where, where we go with that. But the outline very clearly brought into our company a CMS and a technology that we are now replatforming our entire company upon. Our sites look and act and tell stories better than anything else on the internet right now. And I'm, I'm really proud of what we spent the last year doing, especially in a pandemic, to replatform you know, five of our sites and the other three or four to come this year on this new CMS that allows us to tell stories that are just so visually compelling and so in line with how users consume content on the platforms, it's been a game changer for us. And that format alone has generated over $12 million in revenue for us against 80 mm-hmm. different campaigns that we've done for advertisers. And I credit the outline with, with bringing that all to us. It was really the foundation upon what that CMS was built upon. It was a big reason why we acquired it You know, with Josh Topolsky and team. And it's, it's been a major driver for our company since. I think the visual storytelling element, and you did mention that this was a driver of revenue for um, for your company in the past year. But I, I was also curious about like the um, uh, BGG impact and like some of the you know very purpose driven storytelling, as um, I think you had called it. Um, how did that fit into the? the context of your sales operation and, and your advertising? Like, how are, how are you tying those to your advertisers to help kind of, um, I don't know, close those deals? Yeah, I, I love the impact work and the social, the social impact work and the good CSR work that a lot of our clients do um, is so important now more than ever. And frankly, it's, it was a differentiator when BDG started with Bustle back in 2013. You know, women's lifestyle media and women's fashion media was frankly Toscany white girls on the runway since the dawn of time, going back 100 years. Um, it was a lot of the same. There wasn't a lot of diversity or inclusivity that was that was part of the women's lifestyle media story, but the planet was changing. Um, and the face of the, of the nation was changing very, very quickly. Um, but media hadn't quite caught on. So BDG has always had in its DNA diversity, inclusivity, impact, really good stories that, that you know, provide a platform for the untold story to be heard. Um, in this last, you know, 12 to 18 months, especially with COVID, I'm really proud of the work that we do for Dove, you know, around their Real Beauty initiative. We've done great work for Walmart, for GE. Um, we've done terrific work for AG Jeans around sustainability and just having, you know, the environment be a backdrop to some of the beautiful fashion work we've done for them. We know through all of our research that if if consumers feel that a brand is really putting its money where its mouth is and not just providing lip service to the impact work that they say they do, but actually put action behind their words and and truly stand for something the way that the way that Nike does, you know, the way that Dove does, they will be much more heavily rewarded at the cash register when it's time for that consumer to check out. And what we do is provide a very credible and authentic, trustworthy home for those brands to tell their stories. And it's it's part of a lot of work we're doing now. It's like consumers don't care about your product as much as they're like, what's your story? 
What are you into? Who are you backing? How do you feel about what's going on in the world right now? Then I'll consider purchasing your product. And we we really help them tell those stories. Got it. Do you think that, like, I think in the context of 2020, especially around um, the civil rights protests and, and things of that nature, did you see kind of like an increase in that, um, I guess it's top of funnel brand awareness kind of advertising, but that very much like focused on... Um, companies, missions, and things like that? Like, did you see kind of a, a spike in maybe interest in those types of advertising um, campaigns or interest from advertisers in that around that Ab- time? Absolutely. And it's something, it's it's an evolution. It, it's not just around all, all of the social injustice and the Black Lives Matter movement and um, everything that's happening around just, you know, how how amazingly far women have come even in, in, in work right now. Uh, the whole entire world is moving in the right direction. It's been happening since the days when I left Teen Vogue back in 2015. It was starting then and we were having major conversations about what Teen Vogue would look like, you know, in the years ahead and Bustle launching in 2013. I mean, this movement has been happening. And I think, again, it's been accelerated in the last year. And there's really courageous advertisers out there like Unilever, like Dove, uh, you know, from uh, from Unilever, like Nike, who's kind of the captain of of really just standing up for what they believe mm-hmm. in. P G's doing it. I mean, major companies are taking a stance, and and some of them are pretty, you know, historically conservative companies and brands that were always afraid to upset people, but they realize, like, look, this is what's right, and I have to let my consumers know that I stand up for it. So we're seeing a lot more of it. It's awesome. It's what should be happening. And then the other part of the work is is not just being so overt about it, but it's really just doing it through your storytelling. So we have a diversity and inclusion committee that is amazing and run by many talented people across our entire organization from all parts of it. They do sensitivity reads on some of our proposals that go out. We're being asked a lot by advertisers what our you know numbers around diversity are. And these are all things we're really happy to share and put front and center. Um, because you have to tell the stories authentically and make sure you're representing your consumers the right way for your brands. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm curious like I have I imagine that these kind of campaigns are well received, but are KPIs like, you know, overperforming in these in those types of campaigns um than compared to maybe some others? Yeah, I haven't looked at this in a while. I did about probably uh, nine or 10 months ago, and then the pandemic got in the way. We we did some research that showed uh, back in 19, campaigns that had a, a major, you know, were telling the right story as far as the diversity conversation is going, the social impact conversation, attaching themselves to the right sort of message and really standing for something, performed three and a half times better on all the mm-hmm. metrics of engagement and conversion than those that were just run-of-the-mill, you know, media or advertising campaigns. The impactful, impact storytelling really does work. And it's why you're seeing so many publishers like us, you know, embrace it for the brands we work with. And of course, the brands that we work with are putting it front and center. There's major divisions now within big companies that have people, you know, that do nothing but make sure that the right stories are being told and the right messages are being, you know, stood up for. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And then I did want to talk about kind of your, I don't want to call them predictions because making a prediction, (laughs) it seems in this time period. Impossible these days. Impossible. (laughs) It's very risky to do. Um, But I did want to ask you your thoughts about this coming year. Um, Do you think it'll be more closely reflective of 2019 or 2020 in the way that digital media companies are operating and have to think about their strategy? 
God, I hope it's more like 2019 with just less stress more than anything yeah. else. It was a very stressful year for for everyone. And, you know, we, we were hyper-focused on our teams and, and sort of their own mental health. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think this is, Kelly. It's, I think this is like when the comet came and wiped the dinosaurs off the planet. Mm-hmm. And there was like new life, you know, pumped into planet Earth. And I don't mean to sound all Darwinian, you know, or anything, but... I think there is a survival of the fittest thing that happened in the last year where certain processes, the way that we operate, how we approach the RFP process, which is just so fucking antiquated, it drives me crazy. Um, And I think certain companies, you know, in certain sectors just won't exist anymore. And you know what? That's probably not such a bad thing. I think that this is um, companies that are very strong and healthy and, and focused on profitability and focused on good financial stamina as companies. Um, will survive this. And I hope that this is the year when some of the antiquated processes and, and you know, even some of the companies that um, are in the way sort of go by the wayside so that we can have a, a fresh, um, you know, couple years ahead. And I think it, it's been overdue. And this is maybe one good side effect that might come from an otherwise really, really weird and crappy and stressful year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also wanted to ask, so we did talk about the BDG shops and and some of the projects around that that you're excited about launching. But, um, you know, what else in 2021 are you kind of like really thinking about focusing on or um, even launching if if you have any other kinds of things you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, the big story for us this year, and you'll hear a lot more about it in the months ahead, will be around commerce and everything that we had just uh, talked about. Um, and it will also be about acquisitions for us. Um, we are in the process now of raising money. Um, it will come, you know, either through the private se- uh, sector or there's a lot of conversations now around SPACs, um, mm-hmm. which we're hearing tons and tons about. Um, we will raise a lot of money. And Brian Goldberg has his credit card and his and his checkbook out and wants to go acquire things. And, and we're fully supportive of that strategy. I think, you know, uh, in 2019, we we made five or six acquisitions. We did one last year with the WJV that we started. I think we'll be back in the three to four acquisitions kind of neighborhood this year, really looking at things in food, travel, health and wellness. Those would be great kind of brands to have uh, in those spaces or those categories to help us mm-hmm. really round out our portfolio. Um, so it's going to be a busy year for us in that regard. And then, you know, I talked a little bit about it, but we just we want to continue to just execute really really well and we're we're hyper focused on setting up and structuring our team so that we can handle and be very very nimble for our clients when they need us to be you know it's i think i have a lot of friends at pop sugar and friends at refinery and condé nast and meredith we're all friends and have grown up in this business together i think they're they have a lot of good things going for them where I really want to differentiate for our clients is not necessarily with the scale or having the best brands. You know, of course, we all think we have the greatest brands. I just want to operate well. I want to execute flawlessly. I just, mm-hmm. I want to deliver for our clients and we've set the team up to operate that way, you know, and um, and and I hope that we can really show our stuff this year, you know, with, with uh, some of the pandemic nonsense behind us, hopefully soon. Kind of going off of that, you mentioned that you thought the RFP process was really antiquated. And uh, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and and how you've set up your team to try to, you know, have that operational smoothness, I guess, um, in the mix? Yeah. 
You know, it, it's, it's awful, Kaylee. I mean, we're operating, our business has changed so much in the last 10 years, five years, gosh, like it's, it's changed so quickly, but we're still operating the way that we did back in the 1990s and the, and the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an RFP goes out to publishers, they all compete like Hunger Games, you know, and the best two or three proposals come out. It's, it's not the way to operate. It's a lot of wasted time. It's a lot of pitching. It's, you know, for even repeat business that we have, it shouldn't be so hard for us to agree to, we shouldn't have to go on so many first dates, um, especially with advertisers that we have years long relationship with. And we've gotten some of our top brands, you know, like, like Unilever, like Samsung to some degree, like Microsoft, like the Gap brands and portfolio brands to really start to think about upfront and endeavor partnerships a lot differently with us. So we have something called BDG Endeavors. You can unlock a suite of things from rate discounts to uh, virtual events or real events to research proposals, any of the things that would typically kind of complement a media deal or a campaign. The more you spend and strive to spend with us, the more that you unlock. It's kind of a handshake. It's not so firm as an upfront. There's no penalties per se if people don't see them through. But we just agree that we're going to work together and that we trust each other and that we understand each other's business and how we operate. We've earned that credibility and trust with them. So like if, if an RFP comes out, like let's just give it to BDG. And let's spend all of our time and energy focus on making sure this is the best possible campaign it can ever be rather than going back and forth about like a comm score run or like the idea not being strong enough. Like those are the things that are easy to fix. Mm-hmm. Let's just execute really well. And there's this weird trend that's happened and it started right before the pandemic. Our normal deal cycle time is about 57 days. So we get an mm-hmm. RFP, 57 days later, we hear if we won the deal or not. That has been shortened to about 30 days over the pandemic. People are holding on to their dollars longer. They're RFPing far fewer partners. Our close rate in December alone was 68%, which is just like crazy. It's normally 35, 40%. Um, And it's because because advertisers are going fewer and bigger. They're trusting, um, you know, a handful of partners rather than many. And you know, it's, it's, it's the way it should be. We should be able to focus on doing great work together, not having to convince you over and over and over and over again to go on that first date with us. I guess I'm curious, like- I get a little whiny about it, Kaylee. I'm sorry. I, like it. I, I, get, I get a little ranty about it, but it's something I've been talking about for years. And I'm, no, I think finally things are changing a little bit for the better. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And it's something that I think um, my team has been talking more about that as well, because um, I think the role of the salesperson in media has kind of changed quite a bit over the past year. So um, this is a really interesting kind of um, piece of this conversation. I'm curious, do you think that limits at all the advertisers that you're working with? Because it's really focused on having those, you know, tight relationships already. Like, how are you pursuing new advertisers or, um, I guess, to go off the the first date kind of analogy, mm-hmm. like romancing, you know, new categories or, you know, kind of appealing to, to new marketers? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's really hard now. Like, I've been with the same woman for the last eight and a half years. I couldn't imagine having to date in a pandemic right now, virtually on Tinder or whatever the kids are doing. Um, (laughs) The you know, it's really hard to make uh, new connections. And what we've done is we've got a really great sales team. You know, we hired Mark Ruchik out of Vox uh, right before the pandemic. I think he started literally the first week we went into quarantine back in like March. And, you know, he brought with him so many great relationships and knowledge. And he actually is our Samsung 
uh, you know, sales director. And it's just a good example of really having the right team that has a lot of the, a lot of that experience. Um, and, and again, diversifying half of our business, uh, in 2020 was new business and half of it was repeat business. Mm. So it's a matter of when you get that first campaign and it is hard, uh, there's no secret sauce for it. When you get that first campaign, you really, really have to over deliver and execute flawlessly because there's no time for, to mess up. It's like, we're going to, I'm going to keep rolling with the first date thing. Like we went on the first date and she sat there the whole time chewing with her mouth open. She was so rude to the waitress. She didn't put her napkin on, on her lap. I'm not, we're not going out on the second date. It's not happening. Okay. Um, so you, you can't, you can't mess it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, absolutely. I think we've exhausted the first date thing. <laughs> you know, it was a, it, it's a great analogy. Um, I feel like, you know, for our single listeners that that's definitely something that they're thinking about how to date during a pandemic. Um, mm. but yeah, that's, that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, and I guess my, I don't know if I, I might have other questions, so I don't want to call it my <laughs> last question, but, you know, looking at the advertising piece of it, um, and the the acceleration of um, your e-commerce business um, last year, like what was the balance in the split in revenue? Like how did that kind of end at the end of 2020? And what are you hoping it'll be for um, this coming year? Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, our core direct sold advertising business will continue to be the majority of our business. It is, we're really good at it. We've built a company around it. There is certainly, there's an amazing present and future for the digital advertising ecosystem and business, especially as advertisers are thinking differently about, you know, Facebook and Google and even some of the other platforms. Now they're thinking differently about TV, broadcasting cable, very differently with the advent of streaming. So so direct sold advertising business remains our bread and butter. Last Mm -hmm. year, about 20% of our business was affiliate. Um, I would love to see that grow to about 30% while we continue to grow you know, the, the direct advertising business to make up 70% instead of 80. I think there's about, you know, room for 50% growth on our affiliate through some of the other commerce initiatives that we're baking. And then, um, I did have one other question for you, cause I know you mentioned kind of, um, reorganizing and re-strategizing your sales division, um, and some hires that you made at the beginning of last year. Are you thinking about hiring, um, this coming year and kind of growing your team to achieve some of these new, um, initiatives and, and operational strategies that you have laid out? Absolutely. I mean, I've got roughly a 150-person uh, org uh, under me right now on the whole revenue side of things. That's, that's you know exclusive of all the editorial that Emma and Josh and team run. Um, you know, I, I'm really pleased to tell you. We just looked at this last week as we closed the books as well. Um, we have seven percent more people uh, now than we did a year ago. So while we went mm-hmm. through some very hard changes and challenges in March and April, and had to make you know say, say goodbye to some of our colleagues, we have been hiring back and and hiring in a variety of places. You know, uh, as of you know Q3, Q4, and we're in a really good place. We'll continue to hire and focus on. Um, the post-sale and the pre-sale teams, the support you know engine that really drives the company and allows the sellers to do their job so wonderfully. I think that sales people's job has really changed over the years, and it is much more customer service and account management focused. Where you know the most ideal thing you can have is a seller who has a three or four million dollar piece of business and has had it for years and is now just in really really good service mode on that business, but has a team mm-hmm. behind them to support it. And then can also go out and 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 hunt for for new opportunities as well, and um, that's what we're really focused on. Again, it's it's really that operational and executional excellence, um, and we're setting the team up 
to do just that this year and beyond. Well, that is it. This is really interesting. I really appreciate uh, you joining us today. It was really fun, Kelly. A great way to start the year. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. Thank you.